I want you to open your Bible with me to Genesis, the first book. Genesis, if you don't have a Bible today, you can borrow one. We've got them in the book racks underneath the seats near you. We'll put these scriptures on the screen, but I am going to ask you to turn to a few places today. This morning, I'm going to be finishing a series I've already referenced once in this service. We're calling Double Blessing. I want God's goodness for your life. If you're wondering today throughout the course of this message, what's the catch? That's the catch. I want God's goodness for your life. Want it for mine too, by the way. <clears throat> I hope you want it for me. I hope you don't just want you blessed. Come on, how many of you know it's, it's easy to celebrate when it's good for you? How many of you know it's more challenging to celebrate when it's good for somebody else? Would you just get excited for somebody else's blessing one time? Can I get an amen? Okay, okay, I'm just, because I'm going after it. I just, I don't, if you're going with me, I don't know, but I'm going after it. We started this series two weeks ago with this simple premise, God wants to bless you. In fact, that's the reason I had you turn to Genesis chapter 1, because I want you to see that in the very beginning, God had every intention of blessing his people. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, it starts like this. Right after God creates man in his own image, male and female, he created them. It says, verse 27, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Verse 28, God blessed them, and he said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds and the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. The first thing God said to man was, I want you to rule. I want you to have authority. I want you to have dominion. Over all of these things, verse 29, then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the earth, on the face of the whole earth, and every tree that has fruit with seed in it, they will be yours for food, verse 30, and to all the beasts of the earth, and to all the birds in the sky, and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food, and it was so. You know what that verse tells me? It tells me that before there was original sin, there was original blessing. That was God's plan. In fact, I would say to you today that any theology that you have that begins with original sin and not with original blessing is a false theology. And it dishonors the heart of our Heavenly Father. God is a Good God. Somebody ought to say amen to that today. Come on, if you don't understand that about God, then everything you believe and everything that you read out of this Bible is going to be warped. Everything we understand about God has to begin with the goodness of who he is. By the way, footnote, not the message today, but that's why it ought to matter to you that you're known more for what you're for than what you're against. Because if God's a good God and we're supposed to reflect the heart of his kingdom, then we ought to be good. And I don't just mean you ought to behave. I mean we ought to do good. We ought to show good. We ought to talk good. People ought to know what we're for more than they know what we're against. Man, it got quiet in here. <laughs> the reality is we could all pick apart the things that we're against, but God has called us to be a blessing. We're talking about blessing today. 
Genesis 12, we looked at it the last two weeks. We won't turn there today, but God promised to Abraham, who's called the father of our faith. He said, I have blessed you to be a blessing. And so the way that God accomplishes his kingdom agenda in the earth is through blessing. He blesses one so that they can bless another, so that they can bless another. And through the blessing of Abraham, we have the son of David, we have Jesus our Lord, and of course we have the blessing of sitting in this house this morning and worshiping him as our Savior. Blessing is God's plan for his kingdom agenda. Last week we, we talked about how success is actually succession. That God's plan for blessing you is, is bigger than your lifetime. And that your vision ought to be as well. We talked about how Elisha, the young prophet of God, pursued the double portion of Elijah's anointing. And while he was pursuing the double portion of the anointing on Elijah's life, the old prophet Elijah was pursuing the double blessing. And the double blessing was the moment that he saw the anointing on his life translated into the double portion in the life of the next generation. And I want to say one more time in this series that the greatest blessing that the senior adults of this church could ever receive this side of heaven is to see the work that you've done not be done in vain, but to see the kingdom of God advance to the next generation. To see the anointing on your life multiplied and duplicated into your children and into your grandchildren. See, the double blessing is, is not just seeing God's blessing come to you. The double blessing is seeing God's blessing flow through you. How many of you want a double blessing in your life? Amen. See, we're not talking about greed. We're not talking about more for me. We're talking about kingdom advancement. We're talking about God-given purpose. And I want to say it one more time before we move on. God's purpose is to bless you. Because if he's going to do something through you, he's got to give something to you. Now, next Sunday, you've heard it on the announcements, but I just want to echo this. Be here next Sunday because we're having a youth takeover service. And I believe this next generation is going to bless you next Sunday. We're going to have our students serving in all of our ministry areas as well as on the platform here. <clears throat> and I'm so excited to see the next generation stand up and lead the church next Sunday morning. Because I believe that God wants 2020 to be a year of double blessing in our lives. I want to coach you this morning specifically in one area of your life. I want to talk today about money. Now, we've talked about blessing, and we've talked about many dimensions of it and what it looks like in the way of generational blessing and in the anointing and the gifts and call of God today. But if there's any area of our lives where people miss out on God's intended purpose of blessing their life, more often than not, it's in the area of money. Last week, we ended by talking about the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves and fishes. Even if you weren't here, maybe you know that story, that Jesus fed over 5,000 people. Some estimate maybe it was more like 30,000 because they only counted the men. But Jesus fed them with a little boy's sack lunch, five loaves and two fish. But the key to that miracle was the moment that the disciples responded to Jesus when he said, you feed them. And the Bible says they brought him five loaves and two fish. And what I want to say at the, the beginning of this session here, this message on money is God will bless what you give him, but 
you got to give it to him. You, you, can't, you can't hold out and say, well, it's not much. Well, it'll never be much if it stays in your hand and my hand. But if you'll bring it to him, you have the potential to be a part of a miracle that God wants to do. The Bible says this in Ephesians. Don't turn here. just want to put this on the screen. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8. It says, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not people, because you know that the Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do. I have to read that part again. The Lord will reward each one for whatever good they do, whether they are slave or free. Can I tell you what this verse is not? This verse is not the golden rule. See, the golden rule says do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And a lot of times we feel like if we obey God, people are going to do to us the way that we do to them. That's not what it says. How many of you have ever experienced that? People don't treat you the way you treat them. Come on. Like, yes, somebody, somebody wounded gave me an amen right there. Like, yeah, I've been there, been there, still got the dagger back here. People don't do to you how you do to them. That's not the golden rule anyway. The golden rule says treat them the way that you want to be treated. Do unto them as you would have them do unto you. But this verse in Ephesians 6 says something entirely different. This verse says the Lord will reward each one of you for the good that you do. Your reward doesn't always come from people. God can use people. But your reward comes from the Lord. I want you to hear something today, and this is so important. You can't miss this. You can't buy the blessing of God. You can't buy it. It's not for sale. If it was for sale, I'm pretty sure none of us could afford it. You cannot buy the blessing of God. Listen, giving of your resources, it, it can't purchase the blessing of God, but what it can do is it can position you for the blessing of God. Somebody needs to write that down today. Giving does not purchase the blessing of God, but it does position you for the blessing of God. Now, listen, if we're just talking about stewardship, we could just stay there because all of life is about stewardship. All of life is about handling the things that God's given you. The Bible says that every good and perfect gift comes down from God. So we could talk about stewardship. We could talk about time because you have to steward your time. We all have the same amount of time. We could talk about talent because you've got abilities that you're called to steward. We could talk about the temple. The Bible says your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. So how you treat your body is a stewardship test. And how many of you want me to preach on that this morning? I didn't think so. But the reality is, all of those things, our time, our talent, our treasure, the temple, those are expressed through how we steward our treasure. Our treasure, our resources. See, the reality is you're, you're trading your time. You're trading your physical health, the temple of the Holy Spirit. You're trading your talent, your ability for your bank account statement. It might be a nine to five. It might be 40 hours a week. But however it is that you make ends meet, you're trading all of those things. So the reality is when you look at your statement in your bank account, it's a stewardship of all of these areas of your life. 
how you spend your money, how you use your money. And so I want you to go with me to a scripture in Malachi, Old Testament, towards the end of the Old Testament. Malachi chapter 3. And the reason I want to go here is because out of all of those things, your time, your talent, the temple, your treasure, when it comes to treasure, when it comes to money, this is the only area of stewardship in all of the Bible that God actually says, test me in this and see if I don't bless you. Now, God doesn't ask us to test him too often. But in this area of life, he says, put this to the test. And and I'll just go ahead and give you the conclusion of the sermon today. I challenge you to put it to the test. I want to read to you what the Lord said through the prophet Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. He said, bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, he says, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. Verse 11, I'll prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. <clears throat> now, now, don't get lost in translation here. This is a promise in God's word for you and for me. It's spoken in a time and in an era that's an agrarian culture. They, they, didn't, they, they didn't receive a, a pay stub or a direct deposit. They, they dealt in exchange And so he's speaking in terms of your barns being full and your your harvest uh, being plentiful and your crops not being devoured. But we understand in all this, he's talking about the principle of stewarding what you have. When he says, bring your tithe, the whole tithe, into the storehouse. And then he says, if you'll do that, I'm going to bless you. And there's two ways that he says, I'm going to bless you. The first one's in verse 10. He said, I'm going to bless you by pouring out so much blessing that there will not be enough room to store it. The second blessing is in verse 11. He says, I'm going to prevent pests from your crops. Listen, he's going to bless you in two ways. He's going to cause blessing to flow into your life, but at the same time, that's not the only way he blesses you. At the same time, he's preventing loss. And can I say... I think sometimes the preventing blessing is a greater blessing than the providing blessing. I mean, I don't know, maybe you've experienced, you know, one, one unexpected automobile accident or, or a sharp, acute pain that ended up in the emergency room, and, and all of a sudden you went from feeling blessed to feeling broke really fast because of one incident or one bad weekend or one unexpected surgery. And, And you have no idea what preventative way God has blessed you. It's a double blessing. He says, if you'll honor me in the tithe, I'm going to double bless you. I'm going to pour out and I'm going to prevent. I'm going to bless your coming and your going, Deuteronomy 28 says. And now look at the next verse, verse 12. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord 
Almighty. You know what he's saying? He says, if you'll honor God first with the tithe, then it's going to become a testimony to the nations. If you'll honor God, if you'll steward your resources, they're going to call you blessed. Now, let's just acknowledge what it doesn't say. It doesn't say they're going to call you wealthy. It doesn't say they're going to call you rich. It says they're going to call you blessed. <clears throat> but by who? They're going to call you blessed by the Lord. In other words, people are going to look at your life when you walk in obedience to this command, and they're going to say the favor of God is on him. The favor of God is on her life. God's blessing their life. He's pouring things in, but man, he's also preventing things. Things just seem to go well for them. When, when everybody else is, is affected, for some reason, you know, disaster just seems to go around them. I don't know why it is that it always seems to work out in their favor, but it seems like the Lord is blessing their life. And he says, that's the blessing that he's going to bring in your life. It'll be the testimony of your life. And that's what it looks like when the blessing of God begins to overtake you. But the reality is, when we read this in Malachi chapter 3, God's not saying this to a blessed people. He's actually speaking this to people that are under a curse. And what he's saying is you can change from being cursed to being blessed. He's not just encouraging them in what they're doing. He's admonishing them to change their way. Let, let's back up a couple verses earlier in the text. Look at verse 8. The Lord, through the prophet Malachi, asks a question. He says, will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me, he says. But you ask, how am I robbing you? In tithes and in offerings. You are under a curse, the whole nation, because you are robbing me. Now, I'm not going to insult your intelligence, but let me just tell you what that said. Not tithing is robbing God. You can take it up with him. I'm just telling you what it said. Not tithing is robbing God. Not giving offerings is robbing God. Now, the question that I have to push into here is, how can I rob God if God owns everything? I mean, if God owns it all, if it all comes from him, if every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights, how can I possibly take anything from him? He owns it all. He owned it before I got it. He still owns it after I got it. And then I realized what he's saying. That I'm not robbing him in the sense that, you know, like the church is not going to survive if you don't pay your tithe. Come on, God's bigger than that. Aren't you glad it doesn't all rest on your shoulders and on my shoulders? God's not saying if you don't tithe, you know, then, then all of a sudden, you know, Jesus' death was in vain. The blood's not enough. People aren't going to heaven. You robbed God. You stole salvation. Come on. Surely that's not what it means. I believe what he's saying is when you don't honor God with the tithe, you rob God of the opportunity to fulfill his kingdom purpose through your life. You're still blessed. The Bible says he causes the sun to rise on the just and the unjust. He causes the rain to fall on the crops of the righteous and the unrighteous. The reality is when you don't honor God in this way, you forfeit the privilege he has of giving you the double blessing. You forfeit the opportunity for God to not just bring goodness to you, but to flow through you because you have chosen to stop and to hinder his kingdom agenda of blessing through blessing. And you rob God of the privilege of blessing others through you. 
See, when you, when you honor God this way, you say, I'm going to be a tither. I'm going to give faithfully. You become, a part of, you become a part of the success of the church. Jesus is building his church. And you become a part of the success of that when you say, God, I'm going to leverage your blessing in obedience. You know, there's some people that would tell you that the tithe is not for today. And they would be dismissive of maybe most of what I've said today on, on this one thought. Yeah, tithing was in the Old Covenant. Tithing is Old Testament, and we, we're, under, we're under grace now. We have a new covenant, and, and that's not for us. And so let me just speak to that for a moment. And first of all, let me just say, I don't really care if you believe in tithing. Just felt like I needed to get that out of the way. And the reason I can say that is because you have a bigger question to answer than I believe in tithing. Or I, you have a bigger question. And I'm going to get to that question in a minute. So I don't care if you believe in tithing. We'll get to the question you have to answer in a minute. But first, let me tell you why we do believe in tithing as a practice in the church. First of all, tithing, it, it predates the law. So to say that the tithing is old covenant and law, the tithe is actually older than old covenant. It's older than the law. The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 7, in fact, go there with me. I want you to see a few verses. New Testament, book of Hebrews chapter 7, what it's describing is actually a situation that happened in Genesis chapter 14. So Hebrews 7 is an exposition of Genesis 14. I've said this before, it's not original to me, but I believe it's true, that the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. And so if you don't understand something in the Old Testament, read the New Testament. And if you want to understand the significance of what you're reading in the New Testament, read the Old Testament. And so when you get to Hebrews 7, we get an exposition of Genesis chapter 14. And in Genesis 14, Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, the priest of Salem. Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness. His title, priest of Salem, means king of peace. So he's the king of righteousness He's the king of peace. Many theologians believe that this is a theophany. We've talked about these before. A theophany is an Old Testament manifestation of the pre-incarnate Christ. In other words, the Bible says that God existed, and Jesus existed, the Spirit of God existed before any of us. Jesus was there in beginning. All things that were made were made by him, through him, and for him, Colossians says. And so at his prerogative, he could have shown up at any time in human history. And many theologians believe this moment where Abraham encountered the priest of Salem, Melchizedek, that it was actually a theophany, an Old Testament appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. And it seems like when you read Hebrews 7, that's what the writer of Hebrews believed. Because verse 3 says this, look at Hebrews 7 verse 3. Describing this Melchizedek, it says, without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of day or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. That's a pretty high description of a guy that you just met in the wilderness one day. Melchizedek, when Abram met him, he did a couple things. He blessed him. And then he gave him bread and wine. 
Isn't that interesting? He blessed him, and then he gave him bread and wine. It's a foreshadowing of what Jesus gave us in communion. And then in response to the blessing of Melchizedek, Abraham gives him 10% of everything that he owns. He gives him a tithe of all that he owned. Now, Hebrews tells us this, and we're going to read this in just a moment. Hebrews tells us that, that Jesus is not a high priest according to the Levitical priesthood. We don't have time to go back to it, but last week we talked about the Levitical priesthood and how God had ordained them to take the place of the firstborn. And so they had the double blessing of God. They were the firstborn of Israel. And out of the Levites were chosen the priest under Aaron, Moses' brother. He became the high priest, and generation after generation, all the priests came from one tribe, the tribe of the firstborn, the Levites. But this story tells us that Melchizedek didn't come from that tribe, and yet he was called a priest. Jesus, the Bible says, is a high priest. He's our great high priest because he made the once and for all sacrifice for our sins when he died on the cross. That's why we don't show up at church on Sunday with a lamb or a goat or a couple turtle doves. Aren't you glad we don't have to make a sacrifice for our sins today? Because Jesus is our great high priest. He made a once and done sacrifice for all of us. But the Bible says right here in Hebrews 7, he's not a high priest in the lineage of the Levites. In fact, it says he's a high priest on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. All those Levites, they, they lived and they died. And before they could even sacrifice for your sin, they had to sacrifice for their own sin because they were sinners. And so what does the Bible do in Hebrews 7? It points past the law. It goes all the way back to this man who Abraham met in the wilderness. This man who is or at least represents Jesus Christ. And look at what verse 16 says in Hebrews 7. Jesus is one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. Verse 17, for it is declared, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. This is what's declared about Jesus. Verse 18 says, the former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, but a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. This is a powerful verse. I need you to understand what this means. What he's saying first and foremost is that we have a better covenant. That the covenant, the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus is better than the old covenant. Because our sins are fully forgiven. They're not atoned for. They're not covered for a year until next year when they have to do it all over again. No, they are forgiven. The Bible says your sins are as far as the east is from the west to be remembered no more. God has hidden them behind his back. You have a better covenant, it says, in Christ than they had in the old covenant. But the second thing it tells us, and this is important too, it also tells us that the tithe is part of the new covenant in Christ. Because the tithe was not established in the old covenant, in the old priesthood. The tithe was established in the priesthood of Melchizedek. 
And if you take the time this week to read Hebrews chapter 5 and Hebrews chapter 7, it emphasizes that Jesus is a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So it tells us that the tithe, it predates the old covenant and the law. Secondly, this ought to be consequential. Jesus said you should tithe. Some of you, why didn't you just start with that, pastor? <laughs> Could have been a lot shorter message. Oh, well, Jesus said it then. Okay. Matthew chapter 23, verse 23. Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders, and he says, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You give a tenth. That's a tithe. You give a tenth of your spices, mint, dill, and cumin. But you have neglected the more important matters of the law. Justice, mercy, and faithfulness. You should have practiced the latter without neglecting the former. What is Jesus saying? He's saying what I said at the beginning. You can't buy the blessing of God. First and foremost, that's what he's saying. You can't buy it. Listen, hear me today. Please hear this. God is not after your wallet. God is after your heart. And what they were doing is they were, they were giving the tenth of their resources, even down to the spices. Could you imagine being that anal about your tithe that you go to the spice rack? Can I say that on Sunday? And, and you, you give a tenth of each spice? And Jesus says, you're doing all that. That's great. But listen, you can't just give of your money and not give of your heart. You can't be spiritually disciplined in one area and that make up for negligence in another area of your life. So he said, yeah, you, you, need, you need to pay your tithe. He didn't say, don't pay your tithe, just go out and serve people, just bless people, just do justly, love mercy, walk humbly. No, he said, pay your tithe, but it's not just about money, it's about the motive. See, God's not after your wallet, he's after your heart. Now, let me tell you the bigger question that you have to answer. The bigger question is this, bigger than do I believe in tithing or that it's for today. The question is, does the new covenant that we have in Christ Jesus, does it compel me to do more or less than the old covenant? I want to tell you today that grace does not discount the law. Grace supersedes it. That we do have a better covenant. And, and, and tithing is not even the ultimate goal. But I do believe tithing is a great starting point. It's a great starting place. See, we started this year as a church looking at the church in Acts chapter 2. We started this year saying, God, the vision we want to run after needs to look like your vision. And so what did it look like to be a part of the church in the first century? A spirit-empowered, advancing kingdom. And we looked in Acts chapter 2 at, at many of the things that re the church reflected. And one of those things was radical generosity. When you look at the church, the Bible says in Acts 4 that the grace of God was so powerfully at work among them that no one, no person among them had any need. That's radical generosity. That no one had any need. Everybody's needs were met. That's a, that's a demarcation of a spirit-empowered church. It's a generous church. 
See, what I've discovered is, as I read the scripture, that receiving God's grace is always a prequel to demonstrating radical generosity. When you've really received the grace of God, it, it triggers a response in your life. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll put these on the screen. Just look at this. He's writing about radical generosity. And Paul says, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. In the midst of very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Now, can I tell you in the natural, that equation doesn't make any sense. I mean, you, you've got severe trial, overflowing joy, extreme poverty equals rich generosity. That sounds like a contradiction. But he says, this is what we see happening in the Macedonian church. Verse 3 says, for I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Pastor, please receive an offering. Come on, please. We, we just want to be a part. Please receive an offering. I, I can't believe we got to wait till the end of the worship to receive the offering. Come on. He said they urgently pleaded. They wanted to be a part of the work. And what did Paul say was the reason for him writing this? Put verse 1 back up there again, because I want you to see why he said this. Look, he said, we want you to know about the grace that God has given. We want you to know about the grace. See, when you've, when you've experienced grace, when you've encountered the blessing, it, it, it's a trigger for generosity. And Paul's writing, he's saying, you gotta know about the, you gotta know what grace is producing in these people. I mean, this is amazing. They don't, they don't even have anything and they wanna give anyway. I mean, they're, they're under pressure. They're suffering. And they have joy. They're broke and they're generous. Why? Because of the grace. I want you to know about the grace. Jesus talked about the power of an encounter with grace and the effect it would have in Luke chapter seven. In Luke 7, Jesus goes to the home of a man named Simon. He's a Pharisee. He goes there to have dinner. And as they're having dinner, a woman that we know as Mary comes into the room where they're eating. And the Bible says that Mary falls down at the feet of Jesus. She's carrying with her an expensive jar of perfume, probably worth a year's wages. Most likely it was her dowry for a wedding, and she comes in, and the Bible says she breaks that box, and she begins to anoint Jesus with the perfume. She begins to cry and weep, and her tears begin to mingle with the dirt in his feet, and the Bible says she washed his feet with her tears, and she dried his feet with her hair, and she anointed him. And as this is playing out at the dinner table, the Bible says that this Pharisee, Simon, began to judge the woman. He, well, first he judged Jesus because he said, I can't believe you don't, you don't know what woman this is. You, you're a prophet. If you knew what kind of woman this was, you wouldn't let her do what she's doing. And while he's judging Jesus, Judas 
is judging the woman. He's going, I, I can't believe you'd waste that perfume on his feet. We could have used that for the ministry. But look at what Jesus says about it. John chapter 7, verse 44 says, Then Jesus turned toward the woman and he said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me water for my feet. But she wet my feet with her tears and she wiped them with her hair. You didn't give me a kiss, but this woman from the time I entered has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head, but she has poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven as her great love has shown. But whoever has been forgiven little loves little. So the question is, have you been forgiven a little or a lot? Because Jesus said, when you, when you only think you've been forgiven of a little, you're not very generous. But this woman, she knows she's been forgiven of a lot, and that's reflected in her generosity. See, grace, a revelation of grace is a trigger for generosity. And if, you, if you're living your life like this, all pruned up and holding on to what's yours, and you're not living out of a place of generosity, you probably need a revelation of God's grace in your life. You might have fallen into the trap of thinking that what you got, you earned all by yourself. But when you wake up every day and you say, God, I don't deserve your goodness. God, I don't deserve your faithfulness. Lord, even the work of my hands is only because of your faithfulness in preventing sickness or disease. God, you poured out blessing when you gave me this job. Lord, you opened doors for me. I was born in the United States of America. I've got privileges that some people have never heard of. I have ice in my drink. Most of the world doesn't have access to ice. God, you're so good. Everything I have comes from you. See, that changes your thinking. And he said, if you've been forgiven much, you love much, you lavish much. Your revelation of God's grace is revealed in your generosity to others. Or you could say it this way. Grace is the genesis of generosity. Judas, Judas called what she did a waste. Can I tell you today, it's never a waste if you give it to God. It's never a waste. In fact, the Bible says in Proverbs, whoever is kind to the poor lends to the Lord. If you've ever given and then it was misused, it wasn't handled correctly, maybe you, you gave and your heart was right and then it wasn't handled right, don't let that leave you jaded. Don't let that make you uh, not want to be a generous person. The Bible says when you give, you give to the Lord. In other words, the seed was sown in faith. If somebody's misused it on the other end and they said, I need gas money and they went and bought drugs, well, don't let that make you a cynical person that doesn't ever want to bless anybody again. Be cautious. Be a good steward. Maybe go pump the gas next time, but come on. <laughs> hey, I, I, I'm, telling the, I'm just testifying now. This has happened to me. I followed somebody to the gas station because I thought, you know, I just don't think they need gas. And I, I don't want to be a miser, but I just don't think they need gas. And so we got there, and I said, I'll fill it up for you. And I put about 50 cents in, and it topped off. And I was like, you got a full tank. They didn't need gas. They just wanted the money. But don't let that 
make you a selfish person that doesn't give. When you lend to the poor, you lend to the Lord and he will reward you for what you've done. Every time you give, it goes to God. You know, my youngest daughter, Mally, we were talking about this this week and I realized she didn't, she didn't always know who she was giving to. She wasn't sure if it was Jesus or Ted. <laughs> because when she was younger, you know, they would receive the offering in class and they would tell them, we're going to give to Jesus. And she would give her offering and then they would take the bucket and they would set it outside the classroom on the floor. And then, you know, Ted would come and he'd take the bucket. And she knew she was given to Jesus and she was observant enough to know that when she walked out of the class, it was gone. And so she just thought when she was little, she thought that Jesus actually came during church and took the bucket. And I had to explain to her, no, that was Ted. <laughs> but Ted knows Jesus and he's going to give it to him. <laughs> right? When we give, we give to the Lord. I want to give you quickly four things. I don't have time to really expound on these, but I just want to tell you four things about our giving. And it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, if you want to turn there. 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2. Here's what it says. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income saving it up so that when I come, no collection will have to be made. I just want to give you four principles out of this verse about giving. On the first day of every week, each of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Four things about giving. First of all, it tells us we should give individually. Secondly, it says we should give regularly. Thirdly, it says we should give methodically, and finally, it says we should give proportionately. Now, quickly, I just want to explain those. You should give individually. The phrase is each one of you, each one of you. As I said in the beginning, all of life is a stewardship test. In other words, when we stand before the Lord, he's not going to say, what do y'all do for me? No, he's not going to say y'all. He's going to say, what have you done with what I gave you? In other words, you're going to stand before the Lord I'm going to stand before the Lord, and we are going to give an account for the deeds done in the body. And let me just say, if you're married, you ought to give together. And, and maybe if you're married, you have joint accounts. Um, that's fine. But you should communicate about what you're giving. If you, if you have shared resources, you should communicate. It's not about trust. It's about letting your spouse be a part of the double blessing. It's, a, it's not about going, oh, well, I, you know, they handle the finances. I don't worry about it. No. Regardless of who writes the check or who makes the deposit or sends the draft, to be able to say, hey, let's do this together. Let's agree that this is what we're going to do so that we can come in to this step of obedience of saying we are giving out of our resources. We're giving out of our resources. Secondly, regularly. You ought to give regularly. It says in this verse, every week, every week. Now, listen, maybe you get paid bi-weekly. This is not being dogmatic. This is not saying that it has to happen every week. Maybe you get a check monthly. It's not about that. What it's about is consistency. 
This statement is saying you should be consistent. In other words, this is not impulse generosity. Now, I thank God for impulse generosity. Thank God for those moments that we just feel prompted or moved to say, man, you know what? I need to do something. Pastor Chris testified to the students in their service last Thursday night about a time that God just spoke to him to pay for someone's dinner at a restaurant. That's impulse generosity. And the Holy Spirit will give us those impulses. Praise God for those. But this is talking about something different. This is talking about consistency. Not having just a moment of compassion or empathy that triggers generosity. Saying that our generosity should come from a place of faithfulness, not feeling. That nobody has to you know, show you a compelling video uh, or put a lump in your throat or a tear in your eye for you to be generous. He says, no, every week. Just, it's, it's, faith, it's not feeling, it's faithfulness. It's regular. The third thing is methodically. He says, on the first day of the week. I'm still looking at verse two here. On the first day. And then later it says in that same verse, set aside a sum of money. See, the tithe is called first fruits. So the idea of tithing, the word tithe, it's a mathematical term. It just means 10%, which means you can't say, I tithe 20%. Well, you double tithe. <laughs> if you tithe 20%, that's awesome. But you also can't say, well, I tithe 2%. Tithe means 10%. But it doesn't just mean 10%. It means first fruits. In other words, it's the first 10%. See, Jewish farmers, when they would come into the harvest season, they would actually go out into their fields and they wouldn't harvest it all at once. They would go out and they would harvest the first fruits and they would collect that 10% of the harvest and they would take it to the temple and they would bring that offering to the priest and then and only then would they go back to their farm and harvest the rest of the fields. According to the Levitical law, if they honored God with the tithe, they believed God would bless them with what was known as the second harvest. So let me just make an observation today. If you feel like you're struggling to get a second harvest, maybe it's because you're not prioritizing the first fruits and putting God for not just giving to God, but giving to God methodically and saying, God, I'm going to put you first. I'm going to prioritize your kingdom. The fourth thing is proportionally. See, the phrase, and it's a grace-filled phrase in that verse, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. The phrase is, in keeping with his income. In keeping with his income. In other words, as I said a moment ago, the tithe is a percentage. It's not an amount. God never asks us for equal giving, but he does ask for equal sacrifice. And even if you give the same amount, it's still not. It's still not equal. Because you may make twice as much as me, and you got it in half the time. So it's a lot more sacrifice for me than it is for you. So it's not, it's not about equal giving. It's about equal sacrifice. He says, give in keeping with your income. 10% is just one penny on every dime. It's one dime on every dollar. And that just scales all the way out. It's funny how, you know, people say, well, man, if, you know, if, if God would give me a million dollars, I'd give 100000 to the church. But they don't give $10 out of 100 And so there's, there's something beautiful and balanced about 
the principle of the tithe. Now, I want to pray for you at the end of this message, and I want to challenge you. I'm going to tell you why I'm preaching this today. It certainly wasn't because I thought I was going to get an ovation of amens. I'm preaching this because I want your faith to grow. I'm preaching this because I've seen this discipline grow my faith in my life. I'm going to say it again today. God isn't after our wallet. God's after our heart. Matthew 6, 21 says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We can read that two ways. We can read that to say that when you look at what you invest in, that reveals where your treasure is. Where your treasure is, that's where your heart is. But we can also look at it from a place of faith. And if your heart's in the wrong place, go ahead and put your treasure in the right place because your heart will follow your treasure. See, that's walking by faith, not by feeling. It's saying, you know what? I'm gonna do what is right in the eyes of God and my heart's gonna follow. I'm not gonna follow my heart. That pop psychology's not gonna get you anywhere. The Bible says the heart is wicked above all things. Who can know it? Please don't tell me to follow my heart. Follow God's word. I'm going to let my heart align with his commands. And I'm going to invest in the kingdom and my heart will follow my faith. Tithing causes the kingdom of God to grow. I'm going to pray for you today. And I was thinking about this. Uh, this week starts the season of Lent. Just just wondering, how many of you have celebrated Lent at any time in, in your past? Don't feel bad if you're not raising your hand. In my church tradition that I grew up in, this church is an Assembly of God church. I've been Assembly of God my whole life. We don't typically observe Lent. We don't do Lent services. Uh, so you may or may not know this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. Am I getting this right? See, I got some folks who go, yeah, we know. We do this all the time. Yeah, this Wednesday is Ash Wednesday. And, and it's starting the 40-day anticipation of the resurrection which as a preacher tells me, I better start getting ready for Easter. So it's 40 days, not counting the, the weekends. And it starts this Wednesday. And so a lot of people will, will do things for Lent to kind of prepare their heart. Uh, it, it's kind of modeled after the fact that when Jesus was preparing to make the ultimate sacrifice, he went into the wilderness for 40 days. He fasted. He was tempted by the devil, Matthew 4. And so people sometimes go into the Lent season saying, I'm going to give something up in honor of the Lord's sacrifice for me. And they might give up, you know, chocolate for, until Easter or at least Good Friday. And they'll say, or I'm going to give up coffee or I'm, going to, I'm not going to eat meat or, you know, I'm going to give up social media. But I got to thinking about that. And if you do that and that helps you to draw near to the Lord, then do it. By, by all means, do it. But... If you're giving up something that you probably should have given up anyway, that's not really a sacrifice. That's just self-discipline. Like, that's just doing what you should do anyway. I'm not saying it's wrong that you do it. I'm just saying, you know, when Jesus went into the wilderness, he fasted food. Like, he gave up something that he actually needed. Not social media or coffee or chocolate. He, he actually made a sacrifice. Now, I'm not calling a fast this morning. But I do want to challenge you. I want to challenge you to, to actually make a sacrifice that is a sacrifice. And for the next 40 days or 
six pay cycles. I want to challenge you to do what we've been talking about and honor God with the first fruits of your income. I want to challenge you to honor God faithfully with your resources, to, to do it individually, to do it regularly, to do it methodically, and to do it proportionately. And, and I would just encourage you if you've never been a person that's given in that way, maybe you've always just kind of been an impulse giver. And hey, maybe your impulses are strong and you've been generous. I'm not saying you haven't been. But if you've never moved past giving by feeling and started giving by faithfulness, I want to challenge you to say, you know what? As I approach Easter, as I move towards the resurrection some 40 days out, I, I'm going to sacrifice. I'm going to trust God to meet my needs, and I'm going to demonstrate that trust by giving him something I think I need. I'm going to honor him with my income. Now listen, if you're already doing that, I want to challenge you to become like the Macedonian church, to move to giving radically. Radical generosity is what Paul talked about when he said they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their means. But I want to challenge you today to trust God in area, every area of your life. And know this, all of life is a stewardship test. All of life is a stewardship test. This one area communicates our heart to honor God in all these other areas. So I want to ask if you would, just bow your head with me right where you're sitting. I just sense the Lord wants me to say for somebody here today one more time that what God wants to be demonstrated through your life is his grace. It's grace. I can't say that word enough. It's grace. Maybe you came into this service today and, and you, you've kind of got a, a position already in your heart. When you hear somebody even say the word tithe, it's like a legalism flare fires off in your mind. And, and you just think, oh, that, that's, that's not for today. I, I can see what they're doing. They want to manipulate me. They're, listen, grace. God wants you to receive the fullness of his grace. Blessing upon blessing. And he does it for a kingdom purpose. He wants to bless through you. Father, today, I just thank you for your presence that's here this morning. Thank you, God, that you want to cause each of us to grow. For some people, maybe they're right now in a position financially, they're so upside down that there's, there's not even, there's not anything left once the bills are paid and and the idea of giving 10% of that to you would just sink their faith. God, thank you that you are gracious and you lead us from where we are to where you want us to be. That may not happen in one step. It may not happen in one day. It may not happen in one pay cycle. But God, cause us to grow in the grace of giving. Lord, we can't purchase your blessing but I pray that as a church, Lord, we would posture ourselves 
for the double blessing of God. Thank you for the grace to grow in this area. In Jesus' name. And everyone said amen.